0: uh, we are heading into part four of a 10 part series. You heard that right. 10 parts going to take us right here to the end of July titled Follow. Uh, by the way, if you've missed any of the first three parts of the series, especially part one, uh, which really sets the stage for basically everything else that we're going to be talking about, I'd highly encourage you to catch yourself up at Grumlaw.com messages. You get more of this face in your life, uh, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab your podcast. But the basic premise of the series goes like this, but believing is easy. Y- y'all. It's just not that hard to, to believe in a guy who predicted his own death and resurrection. Like Jesus actually pulled that off. God, your creator made the standard by which you get that right standing back with him extraordinarily simple. It comes down to belief, faith, trust, synonymous terms, but belief in Jesus and belief in Jesus alone, not belief plus all these good works, not belief plus these religious steps. No, it's just belief, that's it. But as Jesus reminds us over and over and over again throughout his time on earth, following is hard. Actually following Jesus is no joke. It it is an all out war waged against self or as scripture puts it, a war waged against our flesh and a commitment to leverage our entire lives for the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that when we sign up to follow him, you give up your way of doing things. You no longer call the shots, he does. You're no longer the master of your domain, Jesus is. No longer do you live for you, you now live for him. So he admonishes us to to count the cost. Don't just sign up for this on a whim or get emotionally sucked into it on a moment's notice. Consider what, and more importantly, who you are signing up for when you sign on the dotted line to follow Jesus. And in the end, Jesus reminds us over and over again, I am worth it. He says, I am the prize. And for those of you who give up your own way, and leverage your life for for me, he says, in the end, it will undeniably be worth it. Jesus, with an unparalleled and refreshing honesty, asks us to consider, where has your way of doing things gotten you? Not not only do you regularly let the people around you down, isn't it true that you let yourself down? So so practically speaking, he just kind of asks, what do you have to lose? Isn't it time to, to give my way a shot? And so he invites every single one of us, follow me, follow Jesus, follow your savior, follow the God of the universe who who got off of his throne and gave his life for you. He exchanged his life for your sin. He loves you that much. That's how desperately he wants a relationship with you. He proved himself trustworthy when he gave his life for you. And now he asks you to trust him in return perhaps not as risky as we initially thought. And it's really, really important. We keep in mind the sacrifice that Jesus made for each of us, the love that he didn't just talk about, but he showed us in his sacrifice on the cross, particularly on a day like today, when we tackle what is undeniably one of the tallest orders when it comes to following Jesus. We're gonna take a look today in the book of John. It's one of these four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And as was often the case, there was this large crowd following Jesus. A crowd, as we're just gonna learn here in a second, a crowd of believers. It says there that Jesus said to the people who believed in him. Jesus is looking around at these massive crowds and going, that there is no shortage of people at this point who seem to be believing in me. But at a certain point in his earthly ministry, he seems to flip a switch. I talked a lot about this in particular in part one. He starts to say things that honestly just kind of sound insane. Talks about eating flesh and drinking blood. Seriously, that's in there. He talks about, hey, if you want to be my follower, you have to, by comparison, literally hate everyone else around you. In other words, he starts to make this transition from believer to follower. He's glad these crowds of people are leaning into this conversation, but Jesus isn't emotionally moved just because a bunch of people showed up on a particular day. There's a lesson in there, by the way, for all the Christians who are watching right now. Let's not get overly excited that a bunch of people show up, I don't know, for instance, on Mother's Day or Christmas or Easter. In Grumlaw's ability to draw a crowd, how many of them came back the following week? How many took a tangible step towards God in the weeks that would follow? So Jesus looks at this crowd of believers and he starts to explain what it means to actually follow. Follow. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. You are truly my followers if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Come on, let's be honest. That, that, that sounds like a phrase straight from a political rally or, or a commencement speech and less like something from the lips of Jesus. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But, but that's something we can kind of... I'll get behind, right? Regardless of your political leaning, upbringing, theology, ideologies, the truth will set you free. But but the problem and why a statement like this can become so polarizing, especially in our grossly politicized society, is that truth has become malleable. But rather than a concrete, unchanging truth that we return to, that reminds us when we've kind of strayed off the path, we simply change the truth so it's more palatable to our preferences, our opinions, our feelings. So it's more palatable to not only ourselves, but the people around us. And we have all, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, had these moments over the last couple of years in particular where we think to ourselves, shoot, maybe we even dare say it out loud. That's just, that's just not True. But but many of us, and again, this is not just a Christian thing, we find ourselves bending under the weight and the pressure of culture to conform to our particular version of truth or else. It feels like we're being forced to make a choice between truth and acceptance. Cling to deeply held convictions. In the case of the follower of Jesus, the truth found in the unchanging word of God and be vanquished to the outer darkness of society or choose acceptance. Accept that you were wrong, that they were right. You were an ignorant bigot and foolish to cling to such antiquated beliefs and now swallow this truth wholesale. No option B, this is what it takes for you to be embraced by the world. This is what it takes for you to be embraced by Babylon. This is what it takes for you to be accepted. Now, I wanna real quick throw out a warning before I go any further, just press pause real quick. There's a temptation to take what I'm saying right now and view it through a strictly political lens. That if you so chose, you could take this message twist it, politicize it, and and interpret it as, dang right, I knew I was in the right place, let's go Brandon. Or just as easily take it, twist it, and interpret it as, dang right, I knew I was in the right place, let's go Biden. If you are looking for the church that will run congruent with your political party, I'm sorry, you have arrived at the wrong place. Because around here, we do not bend our knee to a blue donkey, or a red elephant, but political parties that will someday both fall apart, pick up a history book, none of them last forever. We, we fall down on both knees in worship to a blood-stained lamb who gave his life for you, a kingdom that is not temporary but will last forever. So, so today, as we have a conversation about truth, be careful to not immediately wander down the political war path. I assure you, Jesus is appealing to something that runs far deeper and is of far more importance. So so when Jesus is throwing out this whole you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free language. What is he talking about? This is a phrase that is plastered all over academic institutions and government buildings in particular, which reasonably leads us to a place where we interpret it as knowledge will set you free. That is knowledge will liberate you free you from a sort of mental slavery. Those who are the most academically informed are the most free people in our society. We look at progressive thinkers, and again, I'm gonna warn you again, progressive isn't inherently a political term. That's not what I mean when I say that. We look at progressive thinkers and we point to them as the most liberated people in our society. We're fortunate that they share what is happening in their highly sophisticated minds with us mere mortals. Oftentimes we don't even care that their tone is so demeaning. And they often speak to us from such a position of authority because clearly they know what they're talking about. That knowledge and deep thinking on these issues, it's liberated them and now they wish to liberate us. And many of us, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, we are running full steam ahead with these thoughts and this new information because their book sold a million copies. They're on every news outlet. That They're extremely confident. Your friends are all tweeting about it. And usually there is at least a hint of truth buried in there that appeals to us. Uh, Allow me just to give you a quick example from my own life. Let's rewind to the summer of 2020. Racial tensions in our country, it reached a tipping point, spurned on in particular by the deaths of individuals such as Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And we see these tensions spilling over in real time with riots, protests, and basically everybody popping off on Twitter and Facebook. And during this period, there were several experts that rose to prominence, not the least of which being an author and professor by the name of Robin D'Angelo. Her, her name and face were popping up literally everywhere. You could not avoid Miss D'Angelo. And in an effort to better educate myself and frankly, better understand both sides of this conversation, I took it upon myself to read what in some ways sort of became like the Bible of racial tensions in our country. This book by the title of White Fragility, a book that I'm gonna acknowledge to all of you, challenged me forced me to ask myself some really hard questions. It it, it informed me. I learned a ton. But there was also plenty that I found myself wholeheartedly disagreeing with and could not reconcile as a follower of Jesus. As the popular phrase goes, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. There was plenty that I needed to chew on and digest and allow to enter into my brain and again, really help form some new thoughts. But there was also plenty that I needed to chew on and spit right back out. But a tension that I was feeling during that time is that a lot of people were reading this book and many Christians, and a lot of people were embracing every single word wholesale because after all, she's the expert. She's more knowledgeable on the subject than any of us. The truth has set her free and in an effort to be liberated, I need to embrace every word as well. The truth will set you free. More knowledge means more personal autonomy, creativity, freedom from oppression and ignorance. But what's interesting is that some of our most esteemed thinkers, that they oftentimes don't seem that free, do they? That they're frequently arguing with other people, that they often seem quite angry. But when others don't agree with them, they often resort to a belittling tone and arrogant speech. Freedom actually seems to be something that's all but absent from their lives. You need to accept their truth or else. Surely Jesus was appealing to something beyond knowledge. But throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, Jesus actually goes out of his way to refer to himself as the truth. One such example is, actually occurs just a couple of chapters later while Jesus is speaking to his friend Thomas. It says there that Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And again, on this particular day in chapter eight, as he addresses this crowd of believers whom he hopes will decide to be his followers, he explains the truth will set you free. Jesus isn't speaking of information or knowledge. He he interchangeably uses himself, the son, Jesus, and truth as synonymous terms because he's pointing this crowd of believers to a greater truth. He's pointing, he's saying to me, He's not implying that knowledge will be your liberation, but rather Jesus himself. See, to this largely well-educated, enlightened Jewish audience, this was so offensive for Jesus to declare that the truth would set them free. In their minds, they were already free. They were some of the brightest people in society. So they go back at him, they say, Jesus, we've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? I mean, these are fighting words. They're defending themselves. Who does this Jesus guy think he is suggesting that we are not free? And as Jesus would often do, he brings them to this point where where they're all universally leaning in. This point of tenderness. And then he points something out that on the surface, it sounds so offensive. Until you take a deep breath, Maybe swallow a dose of humility, you reflect on it, and you recognize, gosh, that is harsh. But I think it might just be true. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. For the person who wouldn't wear the label of Jesus follower, we often deceive ourselves into thinking that we're free. We're free people, free to make our own choices, free to live as we please, free to experience this world to its fullest. Hashtag live your best life. But as Jesus points out to us here, we're all slaves to something or someone. There's a good chance you've never thought about it in those terms, but but you're serving something. Some are slaves to your careers. Some are slaves to their sexual ideology. Some are slaves to that addiction. Some are slaves to entertainment. Some are slaves to their image. Some are slaves to their spouse. Some are slaves to their kids. Some are slaves to pornography. Some are slaves to money. Some are slaves to alcohol. Some are slaves to that lifestyle. We are all slaves to something or someone. And Jesus reminds us a slave isn't a permanent member of the family, but a son, a daughter is a part of the family forever. As loyal as you may be to that movement, as faithful as you may be to that cause, to that career, it will spit you out as soon as you are no longer deemed useful. And as soon as you begin to question things or as soon as you get exhausted and maybe express that you might not be as all in as you were before, you're a slave, not a member of the family. Slaves are interchangeable. Slaves are pawns. They are tools, not sons and daughters. Every single one of us, we have experienced this at some level. The addiction that satisfies a temporary urge, but immediately leaves you feeling shame and remorse. That's a slave. The ideology that made you feel welcomed, but when that same void remained and you started to ask questions, you were told to keep quiet and keep those thoughts to yourself. Slave. More stuff, more possessions, greed fueling, an insatiable appetite where you never have enough. And when you slow down enough to come to grips with your present financial reality, financial freedom feels absolutely impossible. Slave. But a son, a daughter is a part of the family forever. So Jesus says, if the son, and he's talking about himself, sets you free, you are truly free. Remember, truth and son, truth and Jesus are used interchangeably. It could just as easily read. So, if the truth sets you free, you're truly free. Not slaves, members of the family. Not disposable pieces to be spit out when your purpose becomes unclear, but sons and daughters of the king whom he saw fit to die for. What is the truth? The truth is is Jesus. By interchanging truth and son, Jesus reminds us that granting freedom is God's work, not anything that we can accomplish on our own. And again, before you're quick to say, wait a minute, what a pile, I'm already free. Again, just think about it. We're all slaves to something. And though you maybe have never admitted it to anybody else or maybe even thought about yourself in these terms, you have been unable to free yourself from that bondage to slavery. And it's not an accident. That redemption, that freedom from sin only comes through Jesus. Jesus, when he rose from the grave, declared victory over death and sin. Freedom from slavery to sin for all who choose to put their trust in him. And we can only step into that freedom once we acknowledge our bondage to sin. We say it this way all the time around here. Until you see yourself as a sinner, you won't see a need for a savior. Only God can free us from that bondage through his forgiveness, which he made possible when Jesus, when the truth was sacrificed on the cross. The truth setting us free doesn't imply that we're now free to do our own thing. Rather, he freed us from doing our own thing. So we're now available to leverage our lives for him. So so Jesus, the truth frees us from our bondage to sin, but it actually gets better. And, And this right here is where we're gonna land this plane this morning. Jesus, again, he said to the people who believed in him, you're truly my disciples, my followers, if you remain faithful to my teachings. Well, what we translate remain faithful right here comes from the Greek word menete en, which more literally translated means abide in or or remain in. We remain in Jesus by doing what? Following him, remaining faithful to his teachings. We become truly free, not by following what our flesh tells us to do, which is every single one of our lives have demonstrated to us, exclusively leads us towards that which will ultimately cause us harm, we become truly free by having the bondage to sin broken by the redemptive work of Christ, then remaining faithful to the teachings of Jesus. We are free to do God's will and fulfill God's ultimate purpose for our lives. This is accomplished in two ways. Number one, faithfully following the scriptures. We're going to come back to that here in a second. And then number two, following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. For the follower of Jesus, we quite literally have God in spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us, guiding us through this life, prompting, nudging, directing. In fact, it's actually just a couple of chapters later where Jesus specifically identifies the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, who longs to guide you into all truth. That language is very, very intentional. Church, we often don't think about it in these terms, but how kind is it that we are given this gift This helper, the Holy Spirit to help us in this life. But let's jump back here to point number one, faithfully following the scriptures. I wanna speak to a common sentiment that I hear from our world and from those perhaps maybe on the fence about following Jesus. This question of why would I follow the teachings from a book written literally thousands of years ago? Why is that book any more significant than any other book that's ever been written? There's a long and a short answer to that question. I'm gonna give you the shorter, more direct answer. The resurrection changed everything. When Jesus rose from the grave, and I don't have time this morning to do an in-depth apologetic look into the historical findings that support Jesus's resurrection, but you can certainly do that research for yourself. If you're curious about that, there's a fantastic book written by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. i helped help just kind of like an objective view and dive into some of that data but the resurrection changed everything because the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is the same spirit who moved the writers of the scriptures to pen those words. And call me a simple man, but if a guy predicts his own death and resurrection that actually pulls that off, I just kind of go with whatever he says. So this is not just another book. It's a book where the Holy Spirit moved and led ordinary men and women, just like you and I, to pen these words which have been preserved for us. And again, what a gift that we literally have the general will of God preserved for us. Church, for hundreds of years, first century, Christianity thrived and there wasn't a Bible. God gave us this gift for our benefit. I assure you, it's not for him. He wasn't like, oh crud, I gotta write this stuff down. Otherwise I might forget. No, it's for us. Now still some will push back. They'll say scripture, it's antiquated. It's old fashioned. I mean, isn't it time that this book got with the times? But but let me ask all of us just a very practical question. What's the alternative? Seriously, just think about that. What is the alternative? The, The news, more progressive writers, TED Talks, the Daily Wire, Politico, podcasts, your friend popping off on social media? There's the widely held belief that that thought and opinion on basically all subjects needs to be constantly evolving because we are constantly evolving as human beings. And arrogantly, we think the human race is constantly getting more intelligent. I'm not here to debate that this morning. But what we're not so subtly acknowledging with that sentiment is that, dare I say it, men and women, we get it wrong. That the generations before us made mistakes, So so we're improving, we're more informed. So so we're right and they're wrong. Let's move it to a more personal level. Do you get it right 100% of the time? Isn't it true that you and I frequently, we get it wrong? Didn't you once hold very staunch opinions that over time you've just kind of loosened your grips and whoops, I think I was wrong? So so while you might think it preposterous, risky, antiquated to cling to the teachings within some book literally written thousands of years ago, again, I ask you, what's the alternative? Some cling to the ever-changing opinion of people. I'm clinging to the never-changing word of God. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us the savior who got off of his throne for me, the God who proved himself trustworthy and now simply asks me to trust him in return. Listen, you might think that sounds like foolishness. My position is it sounds a whole lot more foolish to attach myself to people, even myself, who literally can't get out of their own way. I'll take my chances with, again, the guy who successfully predicted his own death and resurrection. Now, last thing I'm gonna say on this point, and I haven't been shy about admitting this as your pastor, that there is plenty that is contained within the pages of scripture that makes me cringe, that very much challenges what comes natural to me, that makes me uncomfortable. Honestly, there's just a lot of stuff that I wish wasn't in there if for no other reason. It just kind of makes my role as a pastor a lot more difficult but church, this is why following, one of the reasons why following is so hard. Believing allows you to embrace all the that. Well, Jesus died for my sins and now I got a one-way ticket to heaven, but maybe you get to pick and choose with everything else. Following is hard. It requires us. When we get to these points where we find ourselves wholeheartedly disagreeing with the words of scripture, When the Holy Spirit is leading in a direction we weren't prepared to go, when we're forced to choose between unchanging truth and acceptance, our default position is, I'm gonna choose to trust Jesus because he has proven that he is for me. I choose his truth over my truth. I choose his truth over the world's truth. And again, church, that's just following 101, giving up your own way. Our following isn't defined by the moments when we're in agreement with what God's revealing. It's defined, tested, and galvanized in the moments when everything inside of us is screaming, no way, I can't be true. No way, that is not what I want. But yet. We choose to trust him anyway. Very fittingly, at the beginning of this chapter, there's an kind account of a woman who's caught in adultery. And according to the Jewish law at this point in history, it said that she was to be put to death for her wrongdoings and the religious people of this day, sensing that following Jesus was perhaps, I don't know, a departure from the religious routine, they pose this question to Jesus. Hey, the law says that we ought to kill this woman for what she's done, but what do you say? And Jesus thinks about it, and he agrees, but he adds one caveat. He says, hey, how about he who's without sin is actually the person that throws the first stone, and Wouldn't you know it, slowly, one by one, the crowd walks away until it's just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Does Jesus take this opportunity to put her on blast and pour on the shame and pour on the guilt? As you can see, he instead extends the very thing that she deserves the least, grace, (laughs) forgiveness, mercy. But but does he excuse her? Does he say, ah, the sin, it's just not a big deal? Not at all. He, He says, hey, it's time for you to give up your way of doing things and follow me. I am the truth and I will set you free. That balance of truth and grace is precisely what he wants to offer to every person watching right now, and it's why he extends the invitation to you, follow me.